there is so much out there to get mad about. Social injustices, class warfare, continued colonization, the act of destruction of our planet by those focused on profits and not people. We can find it overwhelming at times. The good news is there are equally as many, if not more, stories of people coming together and rising up against the forces at play. So the creators of Blueprints of Disruption have added a new weekly segment, Ravel Rants, where we will unpack the stories that have us most riled up, share calls to action, and most importantly, celebrate resistance. So we're back in the studio, and normally we have a slew of stories that Santiago, that Santiago and I pitch back and forth, things we want to talk about, things we're upset about. And this week, there is really only one thing on our mind, and that is Palestine. So in this Rabble Rant, we're going to give a few updates. You have to go back to our previous episode to get a fuller perspective on the conflict itself. But it's the global reactions, the media reactions, and the political reactions that we're really going to respond to here, as well as give an update as best we can on the current situation. So right now, Israel is herding Palestinians into the south of Gaza. They've ordered the north to evacuate Many, many, many people have attested that this is absolutely unreasonable, unaccomplishable, and not acceptable. While they're doing this, they're continually bombarding the areas, both both North and South Gaza. There is no ceasefire in the South. They simply are preparing to move in with a ground force in the North that will surely escalate the casualties that we've seen so far. And those are... 2,670 Palestinians as of about Monday morning Eastern time. 52% of those are women and children. And again, these, these numbers are going to rise because the hospitals that are there, that are running at a extremely limited capacity, they are running low now on staff, supplies, water, and fuel. Right. This is just to keep the lights on because the electricity has been cut off and no humanitarian aid is being allowed into the Gaza Strip. The normally apolitical Red Cross has even come out with a pretty political statement for them. You know, they first state the obvious that life saving aid must be allowed into Gaza and all parties must ensure the civilian population has access to shelter, food, health, hygiene and safety. If the parties cannot meet these obligations, they must allow and facilitate the passage of humanitarian relief. They say parties, they mean Israel. Israel has controlled the conditions in Gaza for decades. It is them that are withholding supplies and it is them that are preventing humanitarian aid. They go on to say the Red Cross, the horrific attacks Israel suffered cannot in turn justify the limitless destruction of Gaza. And I wish it was limited to Israel trying to make these correlations that somehow the atrocities that happened upon them can now be revisited on the people of Gaza and the amount of people backing them up. <laughs> we'll go over 
that later when we talk about global reactions. It's not everybody. They want to make it seem like it's everybody. But surely uh, we can still be disappointed in the amount of both the powerful and the grassroots that seemingly have nothing to say on the genocide that's being visited upon Gazans. Uh, That isn't to say there isn't violence in other places either. Uh, Israel has fired upon the airports in Aleppo as well as skirmishes along the Lebanese border. They also fired upon Damascus, I believe, no? The airport in Damascus? Right. Okay. So, (laughs) yeah, Aleppo and Damascus both suffered missile strikes from Israel and massive amount of ground troops are accumulating. Israeli ground troops are accumulating at the Lebanon border in anticipation of, I imagine, Hezbollah's reaction. Now, this evacuation is so disingenuous to give 24 hours, which they have now extended, for such a densely populated area steeped in poverty and destruction to evacuate essentially to nowhere. None of the borders are open. At least Egypt says, Israel says Egypt's borders should be open. Egypt's borders not open. Who knows what's actually happening there? The, The reality is people in Gaza cannot leave. And so now they're asking them to go to the south of Gaza, where, again, there has not been a ceasefire. So what you're seeing is Israel is annexing the north of Gaza right before our eyes and quite legitimately, according to most world powers. I think the pleas are pathetic to um, to Israel to show mercy. The Red Cross statement is important, but the reality is they want them to starve. They don't want aid in. This is a tactic of war that has been normalized over and over again. The starving, the sanctioning of peoples until the powers get the political allegiance that they need. Mm-hmm. They have been doing this to people in Gaza for decades, all by slowly, right? They control those conditions. They have been starving them. We have all seen that shrinking map, right? That's lessening of space, of rights, of hope, the exiling of families, the lack of clean drinking water. We've seen the stats on life expectancy. There is nothing really new about this siege on Gaza except for the speed and the ferociousness in which it's being done and the fact that the world is actually paying attention right now. When it happens slowly, I think people lost interest. And so we're not allowed to bring that up when we're talking about the attacks by Hamas because people, it blended in. It was normal. It was part of the way of life for people in Palestine. Mm -hmm. Now I think people are starting to see just how heartless this Israeli regime is. Mm -hmm. And there's been several moments from this evacuation that have really also captured international attention. One of them being... The, uh, that a convoy um, of uh, three, I, I think it was three trucks carrying dozens of people um, along the main highway from north to south was bombed in a in this airstrike as it was uh, evacuating people, and um, tens of people were killed. And from what I'm hearing in reports um, from news outlets such as the BBC now are actually reporting this, it was then bombed the second time as the rescuers were attempting to help people, as there was ambulances. 
there's been many recorded instances so far of members of the Red Cross and and paramedics and firefighters and uh, people who are simply there for rescuing who have been killed in these strikes. Uh, these strikes have been quite indiscriminate. And these are, these are, of course, war crimes. What we're seeing are war crimes unfolding. And all of this is now beginning to be verified by international media. It's something that is quite undeniable. They're confirming these events in real time. It is before, last time we recorded, we, I mean, we knew, we knew because it's pretty easy to identify that white phosphorus was being used in Gaza, but it hadn't been confirmed yet. Now it's been confirmed that white phosphorus is being used uh, to target civilians. White phosphorus, for those who don't know, it, it is, uh, it, it's combustible upon contact. It's, flammable so it burns the skin it burns people it's essential it's what it is is a war crime it's not allowed to be used in civilian spaces yet they are directly hitting buildings with white phosphorus because their goal is no survivors and that's exactly what's happening and sorry, I was just wanting to scream over top of you. Like at the same time, the U.S. Secretary of State's statement is that Israel respects international law. Like that is some real Orwellian shit. Right? I, I, the amount of disinformation and messed up narratives that are out there to have like the top people standing there and just spouting pure garbage like that while we're watching the white phosphorus rain down is absolutely unreal but there are no survivors in some families no the palestinian health ministry has dozens and dozens it was 45 i believe the last time i checked families that had been entirely removed from their civil registry there are no next of kin we had a guest on two episodes ago before this all unfolded and got a we're going to get into what Gada did at the NDP convention, but we saw her tweet out, I believe just yesterday, that she had lost over 40 members of her family recently in Gaza at the hands of Israeli missiles. This is the case for so many people. We're seeing it. I see it all over the place. People talking about the devastation back in 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 Gaza of, of of friends of relatives being killed it's i don't think anybody who lives in i, I don't think there's a, any palestinians out there who are untouched by by this at this point it's the the scope of this is so massive i i don't know what the number is now because a few days ago it was 6000 bombs that had been dropped i i i'm sure it's which is more than the U.S. dropped in Afghanistan in a single year. Mm -hmm. I saw a number recently that, that shows that actually more children have been killed now by Israeli bombings than, than apparently than children have been killed in Ukraine in the entire war. We drew parallels to that conflict last week when we were talking about this and... The people that continue to be seemingly most vocal against 
Palestinian resistance are still flying Ukrainian flags in their bio. It's and it serves to mention that there are reportedly over 100 Israeli hostages still within Gaza that the Israeli state doesn't seem to give a shit about either. Mm-hmm. I've seen testaments from Israelis where the media are not emphasizing the hostages, that they have become almost a an acceptable tragedy in itself, collateral damage that they're willing to absorb in their quest for revenge. One of the things uh, that really upset us last week and when it was really raw, I think I've steeled myself against this at this point, is the amplified shock and horror and grief that occurred in the immediate aftermath of the Hamas attack on Israel. And it is very typical on how we react to acts of terrorism visited upon Western nations. Because one just has to keep on top of the news even just a little bit to know that these acts of war, these acts of terror on civilians, because if you are a civilian, it doesn't matter the political surroundings around you. If you were shot and killed, if you have a bomb dropped on you, that is nothing but terror. However, it goes way beyond the borders of Palestine and Gaza now. The hatred that has come from that knee-jerk reaction, that was the same reaction that we had to 9-11 that allowed us to have anti-Arab laws, that allowed us to have secret courts to round up brown folks in Canada, spy on them without cause. The amount of rights that we restricted specifically to Arab people in response to that is exactly what we're seeing unfold with Palestinian Canadians, Americans, and folks around the globe. And it's what we warned against when you said we couldn't speak about Palestine in that wake, that we couldn't advocate for a free Palestine until we had fully recognized the grief of Israelis. And as a result, in that time, the demonization that has occurred has held. There were horrible stories that went around in the first bit that have not been verified, even according to the IDF itself. I don't even want to repeat the words that were used. They're horrific, and they were used to absolutely inflame emotions. And the result has been not just the silencing of voices that we really did get into last time, but actual violence being visited upon people Mm -hmm. because they are Palestinian or because they're supporting Palestine. Right. So we have video out from St. John's Newfoundland of uh, someone yelling, I stand with Israel as they swing a backpack into the heads of protesters. That guy even went online, found these people, continues to harass them unabated. A Montreal woman, I'm sure folks have seen the footage of her ramming the car of a Tunisian woman who was flying a Palestinian flag out of her car, yelling at her that she should be assaulted sexually in front of her children. And then, of course, just the other day, we hear about a six-year-old Palestinian boy in the United States stabbed to death by their landlord while he screamed 
anti-Muslim, anti-Arab, anti-Palestinian statements at him and his mother. Stabbed 29 times. That takes a level of hatred that is so difficult to imagine having against a child. That's in the U.S. That's in, that, that was in Illinois. I believe it was in, in Chicago, Chicago or a suburb of Chicago, right? Which is not far from us. That is so unimaginable. And this comes back to the, to the anger we felt when we, when we saw the initial reactions from politicians in Canada, from media in Canada who were like, we will not stand for any anti-Semitism and... You know, uh, the police are monitoring this and that, like the, the statement from Olivia Chow. Meanwhile, there was no mention of any potential Islamophobia, any potential consequence, yeah. any hate crimes. But we've seen there been people have been defacing mosques and and this like this is the consequences of that hatred going completely unchecked. I want to explain a little bit more why I draw that correlation between those who wouldn't allow us to provide context for the Hamas attacks, right? That meant we were celebrating, condoning every vicious act that may have or may not have been committed by Hamas upon civilians, right? Like there was no even verification of details at that time. But we weren't allowed to say, yeah, but the occupation causes this violence. This is inevitable when you treat people this way. We weren't allowed to say that. And because we weren't allowed to say that, even though we were, Hamas, although what they did on paper is horrific to the families, it's horrific. They're not monsters. You can't frame them as monsters without context. In the same way, we don't declare every soldier that fights for the United States, despite their war crimes, despite their erasing a million Iraqi people as monsters. They are human beings. All right. And they are in situations, much of them out of their control. And Hamas is the only armed resistance that the people of Gaza have against a vicious, vicious, murderous occupation that has been deemed illegal by Israel, that we have been told they have the right to armed resistance. But now all of a sudden that's being removed from us because we can't say Hamas is good. I don't know if there is a power out there with arms that is genuinely good at this moment in time. I don't know what a revolution looks like for me. That is a struggle. But they are all the people of Gaza have between them and the snipers on the wall and the embargoes and the starvation and the missiles and the Iron Dome. That's it. That's all they have because the world has turned their back on them. The world does not. They provide aid, but they don't provide weapons. They don't provide the means to, you know, fight a mm -hmm. traditional war whatsoever. It's, it's, and they've trapped these people for 75 years. It's funny how the line we draw is state-sponsored military, like state militaries, right? Like we, yeah. we, we, we somehow understand that, right? Like I think of like, you know the criticisms of Russia, they're all, they're all thrown at Putin, right? Like they're all thrown at those in, in, in power, but you don't hear people like attacking the Russian soldiers in the same way as they 
attack Hamas, right? And I think that that's interesting, right? Because there's some sort, like in our heads, for some reason, if people are, if armies belong to a nation, then we understand it. Why? Why is that where we draw the line? It makes no sense to me. It's all brutality. Well, I think for us, it comes back. When I say us, I mean people living in Canada, that we are in a settler nation state. And we've spent our whole lives under systems that only legitimize state violence. This is what police are, right? This is what the celebration of military violence is all about. You need to legitimize that the state has the only right to violence. It's pivotal in controlling your people and in existing as a nation state. Like that is essentially the definition of the nation state who holds the legitimate use of force, right? But I I have talked about this book before, but not in context of this situation. There's a book by Chris Hedges called War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning. <clears throat> and it's not how it sounds because it's not actually an argument for that in a positive way. The book reads as a real internal struggle of Hedges himself, you know, weighing pacifism versus armed struggle and the pitfalls that come with both. You know, you got to imagine you are in a situation, generational situation that your children are now growing up into of unimaginable violence and lack of hope being brought on you. And every peaceful avenue we go into the or our last episode of how many times, how many different tactics have been used to try to free Palestine from the occupation and all have failed. And the situation is now worsening, right? A far right government is enacted. Their views on Palestinians are clear. They are there to wipe you out. That is obvious now, right? Like we all mm-hmm. know that now that Israel is completely willing to wipe out Gaza. They always have been. But now the mask is completely off. We all know that to be true. So imagine living, that is your enemy. That is the mentality that you've always known your enemy has had because that is how they've treated you from day one. And those are the stories that have been passed down for generations. You have been born into this. You need to find a way out. You have the right to arm resistance just as every other occupation has. And so you need to find guns. You need to find people to use weapons who know how to fight. You need somebody like that if that situation arises. And no, that's not advocating for violence. It's just the reality. Movements of liberation sometimes have to team up with those they may not fully agree with. And... This is what's born from it. And quite often that complicates the matter afterwards. You are stuck with powers that don't respect human life. Sometimes the act of war changes you in itself. How you value a single life isn't the same as when you entered the war. But what happens if you're born into war? What if you're born into occupation and your occupiers have never shown an ounce of value for your human life or those around you? How do you see them then? Mm-hmm. We we can stand back as settlers and be like, I would never do that. What would you do then? What would you do? I don't want to hear what you wouldn't do, because it's so easy to be like, oh, I would never, I would never shoot a civilian. It's funny though. It's funny because people say all the things that they wouldn't do, 
bullshit. Bullshit, because we're seeing it play out in live time, right? I, I'm, I'm not going to mince my words here. Netanyahu is a fascist. The government of Israel is a fascist government. What we're seeing now is one of the most clear-cut examples of fascism I have seen in modern times. The way that they do propaganda is fascist. The narratives that they say is fascist. The fact that, uh, that anybody, any Israeli citizens who harm national morale, they're saying that they will imprison them and possibly even seize their property is fascist. They have police going around and checking people's phones. And if you're posting in, in support of Palestine, they're arresting you. That's fascism. What we're seeing in Israel is fascism. And people always talk about what they would have done in face of fascism. Well, we're seeing it now. We're seeing it now. We're seeing what people would do. So you don't have to ask yourself what you would or would not do right now. You're showing us what you would or would not do. Absolutely. And fuck, like, it may, like, I, I hate, I hate violence, personally. I, I come from, my heritage is of two countries whose history has been defined by violence. Colombia and Lebanon. You know, on the one hand, my dad grew up with bombs dropping on his head. Well, my mom grew up with car bombs. She still talks to me about seeing a mushroom cloud engulf Bogota from a bomb that was so powerful that it created a mushroom cloud. I have heard the stories of all of the killings in Colombia, senseless. All of the violence that came from that. I, this is not, I, I detest this. Am I going to go say, though, that Everybody in Colombia should have always been nonviolent. That that was no, because you know what? How many environmentalist activists in Colombia, who very often are nonviolent, because often environmentalists are nonviolent. There's long been a connection between the environmentalist movement and nonviolent. Well, more environmentalist activists are killed in Colombia than anywhere else. The current vice president of Colombia, an indigenous woman who was an Afro-indigenous woman who was. Uh, an environment was and is an environmentalist activist has had multiple assassination attempts against her. This is the reality. This is the reality, and and I, I actually like I almost, I need to speak on this for a second too. A, a connection there, and I'll elaborate later on in this episode a bit further. But there is a connection between the IDF and Colombia that people don't really know about. But the IDF has trained both paramilitaries and the actual army of Colombia in tactics against uh, uh, fighting revolutionaries. Paramilitaries that have gone and wiped out villages in Colombia. Paramilitaries that have committed all kinds of crimes against humanity. The most brutal paramilitary forces. They were trained by the IDF. They're armed by Israeli weapons. There has long been, it, when during uprisings in Colombia, like a, a couple of years ago, Israel was talking about their support and talking about how, how they, they've trained the army to respond to this. And those tr tactics were used in suppressing the population who were rising up against the conditions. 
this is on the other side of the world from Israel. There's no real connection that there should be between Colombia and Israel. So when I look at Colombia and I think of like nonviolence, it's like, well, what are they supposed to do? Because nonviolence, what it does is it gives a monopoly on violence to the state. It's allowing yourself to be brutalized, your people to be brutalized. And until you've been in those conditions, until you've seen the hopelessness, you cannot tell someone that they can't be violent. Because you know what violence is? Poverty is violence. Not having water, that's violent. Not having food to eat, that's violent. Having bombs rain over your head and not knowing whether or not you're about to be buried by your own house. If your own house is your coffin, that's violence. If people grew up under these conditions, they live their whole life under these conditions. What, what, do you, what do you expect them to think of violence? Do you think that they're just going to sit here and, and turn the other cheek and just allow themselves to be continuously wiped out and wiped out? Because you know what? You know what happens in these situations is all of those people, all of the ones who attempt all the peaceful ways, well, they get killed over and over and over again. And it's almost like you're creating the conditions that create a almost natural selection towards violence. Because it's the violent ones that survive. So what are you left with? We can't, like, we need to have some perspective here. Because I, I don't believe there's ever a situation where it's justified to be killing civilians. Absolutely not. But what, 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 what are the conditions here that we are creating? And we are complicit in this. We allow this. We've been celebrating this. The Nakba it, was that, violent. Uh, right? Like when Palestinian villages were erased from the map, that was violent. How many, how many of those people did not fight back? How many villages were just destroyed with only one side of violence? How, what are, what and it's crazy that, sorry, and it's crazy that people frame this as a war, as though there are two nation states here with equal forces fighting one another and we just both need them to stop. That perspective you're talking about or context, that's what was trying to be erased. Jeremy Appel wrote a great piece recently called Eyeless in Gaza. Of course, it's going to be linked here in the show notes. And I'm just going to read a quote there from the very beginning. You don't need to cut. So <laughs> although we've given you many updates, Jeremy tells us that you don't need to keep up to date with every single alleged atrocity to know one simple truth. The violence needs to end immediately and its root causes must be addressed. We cannot let context become a casualty in the fog of war. Propaganda's purpose, exas exasperated by social media algorithms that promote the most inflammatory claims, is to draw people to the conclusion that the violence must escalate immediately. So it's that's he's explaining why it's so important there to provide the context to the violence that we're seeing and not simply just to react to it. And that a cessation of this violence, like these missiles and these attacks, is not an end to the violence itself. The violence is the occupation. This is part of that occupation. Part and parcel. Mm -hmm. 
So ending this doesn't really do anything except allow humanitarian aid into whatever is left of Gaza. Mm-hmm. But that, that surely can't be the end of it. All I'm saying is those, those who are calling for an end to violence need to start actually thinking about what, what, what does that look like? What does nonviolence look like here? If nonviolence is the erasure of Gaza, if nonviolence is the complete colonization of Palestine, is that what we're willing to accept here? Is nonviolence... Yes. But yeah, I mean, because that, that's the most likely ask here. And, I mean, people also need to, like... This also, this is not happening. Like, we, we also need to understand the region a bit for a second, right? Because what's going to happen if Israel launches a ground invasion on Gaza? Well, it's looking like in all likelihood Hezbollah will then launch an invasion of northern Israel. That's what it's from Lebanon. From Lebanon. Do we have any idea what that would look like? The, the violence that that'll bring? I mean, Hezbollah is the most armed, trained, and powerful militia anywhere in the world. Last time they went to war against Israel, was it in 2008? Um, my years, it's 2005, 2008, something like that. It, went, it landed in a stalemate, and Hezbollah was outnumbered 10 to 1. When Hezbollah went to war against ISIS, they absolutely obliterated them. It wasn't even close, because Hezbollah is that much more well-armed and well-trained. This is a militia that's more powerful than most countries' militaries. Do we understand what that would look like for them to go to war against the state of Israel? And there's also context there because Israel had an 18-year occupation of the south of Lebanon. Israel has gone to war against Lebanon in the past. This is... And I... Sorry, there's a siren. I'm just going to let that pass. I, I, I speak from a, where I'm coming from here. Like I, I acknowledged last episode, I, my family are Maronite Christians who, during the eight, 1985 war, which led to the occupation, it was Maronite Christians were on the side of the IDF. They sided with the IDF in that war. Just for some personal context here which I condemn. And so this this is also not just some, like people like to just, you know, say, ah, this is Iran's doing, they're a, a, a tool of Iran. No, they're not. No, they're not. Hezbollah, I, and for the, like I have my criticisms of Hezbollah as, as anyone knows. Hezbollah is truthfully, Part of the Lebanese government, they, until recently, they held a majority in the Lebanese government. They provide social services for the regions under their control, mostly in the, uh, I forget the name of the valley, but it, there, there's a fertile valley close to the border of Syria and, and, and in the south of Lebanon. This is, almost, this is pretty much a government, is what they are. And so what we're looking at here through this escalation of violence, it's just more violence. And and what that would look like, it might bring in Western powers who will then provide backing and funds. And I don't know if the West will actually invade. 
I don't know if Iran will then invade. I don't know how far the escalation of this goes. But the question is, like, in the face of this, I mean, it feels like I feel like we're 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 looking at the Iraq War, like the days before the Iraq War. We're looking at, you know, this has historical precedent. This moment has historical precedent. Do we really? Is that the future we want? Is that what we want to allow? For what? For what? I think that's why it's so important to continue the shift in narrative, right? To push through because it will matter. They, if we allow them to manufacture consent around this type of response, not only will it set a precedent for future actions of Israel and, and, and what other state actors might try, but like Santiago says, it's, it's, it's this powder keg of tension now in the Middle East with a lot more players than simply Hamas and Israel. And we know Israel's perfectly aware of that uh, from the bombs that they've dropped on Lebanon and Syria. And to be clear, some of those bombs targeted journalists. There was a group of journalists reporting out of south of Lebanon who were targeted, one of them killed. And one of the worst parts about that, that particular case that you're talking about there, is the agency's refusal to outright name Israel as the state who, the actor responsible for the journalist's death. It was from a missile that came from the area of Israel. And there is a lot of media responses that are playing into this manufactured consent that we're seeing happen, where, again, we know most people don't agree with the act, most of the actions of the state of Israel, they don't agree with the occupation. They understand it's apartheid, except it, it's it. If one were to simply read the CBC or listen to Justin Trudeau or maybe even sit on NDP convention, would think that everybody thinks that this is fine, that this is understandable. And I mean, even when you look at Justin Trudeau's statement, most recent statement on Palestine, well. He he does, he he minces his words, but you know we we hear things like I'm deeply concerned about the humanitarian crisis. Like refuses to name the perpetrators and refuses to shame Israel for mm-hmm. its actions. Biden has urged a little bit of caution, not publicly. Apparently, that's gone through the back channels, and we're all supposed to know about it. So even Biden is urging caution, although while arming them. And Canada is just deeply concerned about the humanitarian crisis. Like a lack of water, it already was a humanitarian crisis. This is now genocide. And there's a real lack of willingness for folks to say that word and and respond accordingly. Now let's talk about that manufactured consent. Let's talk about that narrative for a second because whenever we're approaching war, whenever, especially uh, something on, on this scale, well, the media plays a huge role, a huge role in, in how the public responds to that. Now, myself being in journalism school, you know, one thing that you hear a lot being said over and over again is like, we have to report neutrally. We have to report neutrally. We have to. And 
I can't help but have one quote play over and over again in my head from Archbishop Desmond Tutu, the South African apartheid, anti-apartheid activist. If you are silenced, if you are silent, if you're neutral, sorry, if you're neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. Because that's what neutrality is. It benefits the oppressor. And that is what we have seen over and over again repeat during these times. And worse, worse yet, is that oftentimes these media networks are actually not at all neutral. They preach neutrality, but then you get every... Look at the Globe and Mail where every single opinion article written has been on the side of Israel. Every single one of them. Look at the headlines running in the National Post where... You know what? I need to pull this up because there was there was a, a front page of the National Post that was so egregious that... One second, it won't take me long to find it. Unless it does take me long. I'm going to just Google that. I'm going to search up National Post on on Twitter. Sorry, this is so important. I need to... It's okay. So here was the headline, the front page of the National Post. A war of the entire civilized world against savagery. Tell me that's not real. Man, I had some really egregious examples in my notes and in my head, but that really fucking takes the cake. And, you know, we've seen like talking heads, like folks within their bio bragging about working for the BBC, fucking doctors openly calling for genocide. Meanwhile, openly. meanwhile, descendant voices within these networks are being silenced. The MSNBC pulled three anchors off the air. So, this, right. so you're also not allowed to have counter voices at all. And we have historical precedent here. We can see that over and over again, over the course of history, we've seen that every single Canadian media network has been in the favor of war, has always sided with war. This is irresponsible. This is so, this is so irresponsible. And so with them controlling this narrative, we've also seen how politicians have been doing the same. Like everybody is united. And, and what happens then is that if you're going and you're speaking to sources from Israel who are sources from the IDF or who are Zionists hell-bent on genocide, well, they're, they're saying the quiet part out loud. And we're seeing it more and more. They're saying the quiet part out loud. They're calling for genocide in those words, in genocide. And this is being broadcast live around the world. And more and more, because the, the, the reality is, and Noam Chomsky speaks of this in Manufacturing Consent, the reality of it is, is that journalists are not being pulled into back rooms and told, this is what you need to talk about. That's not how it works. Sometimes it's how Unless it you're an NDP MPP yeah. and you get a fucking memo from Merritt Stiles just, you know, 
from her chief of staff telling you absolutely under no circumstances can you attend a protest for this crisis or make any statements that aren't approved by us. And Mm -hmm. we will not approve any statements that don't completely fit what the leader has already said. And and that's interesting. Yeah, like absolutely. The NDP it's very close, but in media, it's not supposed to be, and 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 it and it usually right. is, and occasionally it is. You know, I've heard stories, but for the most part, what it is is the selection of of journal. Like, if you say one thing and they like it, you get promotions. If you say the other thing, they don't like it, you get pulled off air. You know, so what we're getting right now is a lot of situations where journalists who actually haven't been dissonant in the past. When they hear, because we do have an education system that teaches against fascism. You know, everybody grew up learning about Nazi Germany. and In an authoritarian institution, though. Yeah. So, so a lot of journalists are now, they're talking to sources who are calling for genocide. And they're like, whoa, wait a minute. You know, I'm, so you're seeing it live around the world. Journalists being like, whoa, hold on. Hold on. What are we talking about here? Yeah, there's some live interviews that people need to watch where there's some BBC reporters really, they say the quiet part out loud and the talking head that they're grilling just simply nods. Yep, that's exactly, that's war. And and so it's interesting because that very institution is in a, in a way it's unraveling. We're seeing the the harsh narratives of the first few days. It's beginning to unravel. Part of the reason has been and has been that the sheer force of Palestinian advocacy has been beyond what I would have expected. And I'm really enjoying watching it. And part of it has been on an international level. There has been a show of solidarity for Palestine because this issue is bigger than it's reaching people beyond just the current moment. It is representative of a struggle of oppression, oppressor versus oppressed around the world, and there's a lot of people who can relate to it. I mentioned earlier, I mentioned earlier, Colombia with the paramilitary and the military being trained by the IDF. Well, one of those revolutionaries in Colombia who were victimized by the paramilitaries, is now president, Gustavo Petro. (laughs) And he put forward one of the greatest possible statements. He's condemned... Actually, let me just pull this up because I'm not going to paraphrase. If we have to suspend foreign relations with Israel, we will suspend them. We do not support genocides. I call on Latin America to show real solidarity with Colombia. And if they're not capable... It will be the development of history that will have the last word. He speaks on, he uses the word genocide. He talks about the history of oppression and the solidarity that all Latin America should have. Because they have been constantly, every single Latin American nation has been on the other side of this. And it's not just Gustavo Petro. Lula has made similar comments. We've seen Ireland, I, of course Ireland, who has, who has always been an ally to Palestine because they share that history of oppression, has been standing in favor. 
We've seen South Africa, who themselves had an apartheid state. Well, the president, pre, president or prime minister, I forget, of South Africa is now coming out, condemning Israel, calling it an apartheid state, and showing solidarity for Palestine. We're seeing around the world this happen. And now I'm also seeing cases where the minister of social justice in Spain is saying that the Spanish government should bring uh, is bring members of the Israeli government before the International Criminal Court because of war crimes. This is massive. And so, and then as well, there's been, there's a Jewish organization, sorry, there's a, a Palestinian organization in the UK that threatened to bring members of the UK government forward for uh, complicity in war crimes. And now what happened immediately is that they changed their messaging. And we're seeing the messaging changed. People who the first day were saying stuff like, we support Israel's right to defend themselves, are now condemning war crimes, are now saying that humanitarian aid must be allowed. It's working in real time. And I'm seeing people who never spoke up about these things are speaking more and more. The narrative is switching. Young people are, I'm seeing it all over the place. The Instagram stories are all... Uh, speaking on the war crimes. They're all speaking on the brutality. We're seeing it change. We're seeing the media lose control of the narrative. Why? Because it's really fucking hard to defend literal fascism that's not even pretending to be anything else. They're not being slick with it. They're just saying the quiet part out loud and people are saying, hey, that's horrible. That's horrible. You cannot do that. Let's talk a little more about the resistance to the initial narratives and and that pushback, that unrelenting Palestinian solidarity that we are rightfully seeing. So in Canada this weekend and, you know, as soon as it happened, but in particular last weekend that just passed, there were lots of solidarity rallies, Hamilton, Mississauga, Victoria, Edmonton, Ottawa had an amazing showing I was at a little rally in Barrie, Ontario, where a communist comrade of mine he runs the Communist Barrie Party, Michael Spears. And I think it just spoke to the need for people to do something, say something and keep making space for other people to continue their fight against the occupation, because not just a cessation of the violence that's occurring now, but a complete end to the occupation and not ceding any ground in that, in that regard, right? We, we were told right at the beginning, you, context doesn't matter. You don't do an eye for an eye, even though that's what's happening in response. You know, like you can't say that, you can't defend that. But I think we spent a lot of time proving that context is important and, and that the Palestinian diaspora, who we've had Members of it on the show before explain in great detail the efforts that they've gone through to organize over the years, make connections, to mobilize, to tell those stories over and over again, so that although Palestine is, feels like on the other side of the planet, there's so many of us that feel a, a kinship with the Palestinian story because of the work those activists have done for so long. And when they needed 
That work that's has been, been hard, difficult. hard work. You need to listen to Gada and even the Palestinian youth movement as they are on talking about the barriers that they face, the harassment, the attacks, the demonization, blacklisting. That exists, but they they never stopped. And so solidarity rallies are happening worldwide because of that work, not just because we can see what's happening and we know it's bad, but also because of that kinship we feel. Because let's be honest, the Western world doesn't often unite behind causes of racialized nations, right? That doesn't happen all that often. I do think this is the work of of all Mm -hmm. the Palestinians that we've met that have refused to allow their story to be silent and and especially in the face of this and, particular round of silencing, they they push through. And, and and one thing that needs to be mentioned that's such an accomplishment is the real-time fact-checking of Israeli propaganda has been more effective than I've ever seen anything of its kind be in the past, right? When we're talking about, like, the beheaded baby stories, when we're talking, you know, when there's been all kinds of false narratives being pushed out it gets fact-checked and then media networks who initially ran with it are now being forced to make retractions one thing biden who was saying oh yeah i saw the pictures of the beheaded babies and they had to say no actually i didn't because there was no pictures so there's been you know what pisses me off though the retractions don't get the same airtime no the first lie yeah they walk them back even the fact checkers you know we see them and we feel justified and we can share them but but that doesn't sensationalize the same way the original story does, no. right? And so it doesn't have the traction. It doesn't blow up like that. And so even at the NDP convention this weekend, Jagmeet Singh, Jagmeet Singh is still repeating claims of widespread sexual assault by Hamas troops. And the IDF themselves have said this has not been verified. They have not been able to verify it. Even after a week of talking to survivors, they have not been able to verify that. And still, the most progressive leader that we've got in Canada is still repeating these lines. And it's the same way they still, even when we finally get them to fucking seed ground on showing a little bit of concern for Palestine, it's always hedged at the beginning with another condemnation of Hamas violence. It's always couched in this language of justification, even as you're online and you're telling people, you know, this many Palestinian children died today. Yeah? Did you condemn Hamas? Like, it's still there. It's still within our world leaders. It's so ridiculous they won't let go of that. It's ridiculous that it took this level of asymmetry for that to become impactful right like it took yeah it, it takes so many more palestinian children for people to get as angry as they would about one israeli child but that's the scales that we're seeing here that's the reality that we're seeing here the brutality is so absolute that nobody there's no way to spin it anymore there's no way to spin it anymore and so people are coming to the side and it has like we said it's been fucking hard for people to be advocating for palestine this has been 75 years of oppression 75 years generations have passed and people it's been so difficult so difficult for people to speak out and finally we're seeing it's becoming a bit easier today it's becoming a bit easier today because of that continued effort because that effort paid off that effort paid off and it wouldn't have been the case if 
if no context had been created during the past 10 years. But Palestinians activists have been committed, have been consistent. They've been there over and over again. They've been advocating. And that laid the groundworks so that today people aren't learning everything from the start. They're not, they're not trying to inform themselves on 75 years of history in one day. There are people here who had the context and who raised their voices and that got across and the narrative is changing. And now it is going to be that much harder if the West wants to launch a ground invasion, which they might and they've done before. I remind you, they did that in... No? <laughs> I just was trying to leave people hopeful. I was like, no, don't go back. No, the, but that's what I'm saying. Three. It's going to be hopeful. They launched the ground invasion <laughs> in Lebanon. They've launched ground invasions in the past. It's going to be that much more difficult because you need the public's support. They had it in Iraq. They had it in Afghanistan because the fourth branch of the government, the media, was effective in getting people riled up, getting people angry, getting people on the side. But now they're not. Now it's changing. I don't believe right now that it'll be as possible. And the international solidarity of all of these nations who understand the history of oppression, that voice is incredibly loud right now. It is. I want to give a special shout out to the people who have been relentless in pushing back and trying to shift the narrative. And every little bit counts. I'll tell you. Even the smallest notes of encouragement that I get in my private messages allow me to fuel my fire a little bit longer to keep countering that narrative that would allow for genocide and to keep speaking for a free Palestine. But it's also the people tagging in for me when those folks come in with the ridiculous arguments and you just don't have the energy to keep this up for so long. And everyone... Every time you do that and every time your followers see that, every time your family sees your your fearlessness in that regard, you give space to them to then do the same. Mm -hmm. It's critical we all do that work and it is absolutely working. Again, I'm going to bring up Gata, an absolute fearless, phenomenal advocate she went to the NDP convention this week with allies, with family, to push that party to make a statement. But also so that the delegates inside who have been painfully silent, right? We know that their caucus has been gagged, their staffers have been gagged, and Labor's been attacked for any support that they have shown. But NDP members in that convention were painfully silent and undemanding of their leadership. And their Palestinian supporters were determined to make some noise there and not be relegated to an emergency resolution on the last day of convention when everyone has gone home. Right. And I just want to absolute solidarity with those people the NDP ended up calling security, having the venue push police on them, pulling them physically to the ground and shushing them down the stairs so that the delegates could not hear them. And delegates who showed solidarity with them and who were disruptive in their own right had their credentials removed unilaterally by the national director who we've talked about on this show before. And so 
the resistance in those spaces, it matters too, because at the very least, you did force Jagmeet in his final speech to acknowledge the fact that Palestinians are also suffering. Again, obviously, it's not a much, it, it, it's not enough, but this works. This mm-hmm. is happening everywhere. And, London, Baghdad. And, 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 and on those protests internationally, many of them were outlawed. Many of them, they said, you're not allowed to protest, you know, same thing, you know, they were saying that in Paris, they were saying that in the UK, in Germany. What happened? People didn't listen. People came out en masse, en masse. Around the world, we're seeing massive protests, massive shows of solidarity. And again, I mean, I don't think anyone listening here needs a reminder that the cops are always, 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 always standing against the oppressed, standing on the side of the oppressors every single time, whether it's at the NDP convention in Paris and UK. Even our little thing in Barrie, there was a counter, no, there was a separate action in support of Israel in Barrie at the same time that had a larger turnout than ours, unfortunately. Either way, ours was policed. (laughs) We even had a drone overhead of us. It was the resources spent on a small gaggle of communists and uh, folks from the local mosque waving a Palestinian flag. Uh, They were ready for, I don't know what. It shows you also, though, just, like, I know you aren't numbered there, but, like, here in Toronto, it's interesting because... You, there's a, a certain amount of like exposure of like how different the narrative is. Like one thing I've had to do constantly since this has started is remind people Israel does not speak for Judaism, just like Saudi Arabia or Iran or any other Muslim nation does not speak for Islam. Just like it's, it's the case that, like, you know, countries do not speak for all of the peoples of a religion. Right now, Toronto has a huge Jewish population. Huge. If you listen to the narratives that they want us to believe, they want us to believe that all Jewish people are standing on the side of Israel. Bullshit. Because when there was the protests in Toronto, there were thousands of Palestinian activists. And I heard that there was less than a dozen pro-Israel activists. Less than a dozen. And this has been, and I have seen countless Jewish voices condemning this and Jewish voices in Israel. They also want you to believe that everyone in Israel is supporting this. No, they're getting oppressed by the Israeli government as well. Dissident voices are being oppressed. But this is, I mean, nobody here needs a reminder. This is not an issue of religion. This is not a religious war. As much as they want you to believe it is, this is not a religious war. This is a war of colonization. And we have seen massive, massive, massive shows of solidarity for Palestinian people from peoples of all background. I got distracted. I was trying to find a rally that was specifically for Jews um, in Toronto. Um, but I but think maybe... it's It's been a lot smaller, though. You know, like, I... I, I, I I don't buy the fucking narrative. I don't buy the narrative. Like, I think... Let's just... Yeah. I think, like, and that's the thing, is that we're not... Like, 
like what as a journalist you know like the the one thing that was kind of uh you know there was somebody who went and he covered the the palestinian protest for humber right and our uh, the, the professor uh, at the top of the chain was saying you know okay well we need to go get a jewish voice and i was saying like okay but like you're saying like okay we need like a the other side. What is the other side? Is it is it a Jewish voice? That seems wrong to me. That seems wrong because are you going to go like that's tr- acting like this is Islam versus Judaism, which is not. It's acting like Jewish people are on the side of Israel, which is not. And so it's like, OK, do we go? Do we talk to a, a pro-Zionist Jewish organization or we go talk to independent Jewish voices? How do you decide that? How are you deciding who to speak to? Because we know better. We know that if we go to one, we're going to get one message, and we go to the other, we're going to get another message. So how do you make that decision? How do you make the call of who to talk to in this situation? And are Jewish voices who are speaking out against Netanyahu, against the actions of the Israeli government, against the IDF, are those voices being platformed? Do people know how prevalent those voices are, how many of those voices there are? Because they're you not getting the exposure. Can imagine how uncomfortable it is? Yeah. Can you imagine how uncomfortable it is for some of those Jewish activists. I mean, there are many, many, and many, many organiza- organizations that are dedicated to amplifying Jewish voices around this issue simply because of the way that it's been framed. And Otherwise, how do they get it would just be a regular... What? And how do they get treated? They get called anti-Semitic themselves. They get called self-hating Jews. The trope of they the do. self-hating Jew. You hear it constantly. I one of my like I remember like one of my closest friends. Uh, they they shared a post. They're Jew- They shared a post uh, speaking about the uh, about ending the oppression of Palestinians, and they they had people DMing them on Instagram, calling them a self hating Jew. Yeah, one just needs to look at the replies of that are in. Sam Hirsch's feed, for example, we've had on the show, or David Misavar, another outspoken Jewish rabbi mm-hmm. activist in Ontario here. And the backlash has been incredible against them. But nothing, nothing had the level of vitriol, we didn't talk about this earlier, that Sarah Jama faced. I need to give her some space here. I quickly mentioned her in the last episode as the only politician that came out in Canada with a statement that resembled reasonableness. And her statement was simply acknowledging the devastation of the occupation and calling for a ceasefire. What she didn't do was what everyone demands of every person now trying to call for a free Palestine. She didn't explicitly condemn Hamas. And so... You didn't get just people complaining that her position was weak or insufficient. That happened. And that's an opinion, right? How you think a political statement should shape up. That's your opinion. If, it, if it's not strong enough or didn't acknowledge as many people, whatever. But you had the premier of Ontario release a statement that was just parroted by every media news outlet without any contradiction whatsoever, calling her statement anti-Semitic. And there was nothing anti-Semitic in it. But the only reason Doug Ford was allowed to make that statement was because Merritt Stiles 
fed her to them. She first came out and condemned Sarah and told the media she was upset and that it had to come down. I don't know the exact statement, but she made it clear they weren't going to defend her, that they hung her out by herself and they all pounced. Doug Ford called for her to resign her seat and explicitly called her statement anti-Semitic and they all read, they all printed it. They all printed that act of defamation and her party never, ever, ever came out. The NDP, the Ontario NDP, not once came out and defended her against the overt acts of racism that she faced, not just from trolls, from CBC reporters, from MPs, from MPPs, the things that they said to her. Andrew Koch told her to go back to Somalia. And yes, he lost his position as a freelancer for the CBC, but he was defiant and refused to take it down, and he didn't face nearly the amount of backlash that she faced for simply asking for a ceasefire. And if that doesn't tell people that the NDP is a not only a lost cause, it is a detriment to all our movements. A detriment. It has taken Sarah in and it has gagged her and it has punished her and it has removed her effectiveness as an organizer. And that is horrific. And they are coming out with statements of condemnation for Hamas, but cannot say a word about the anti-Palestinian violence that's occurring even in our province right now. And so, although... There has been a shift in the narrative that I think eventually that they're going to have to cede to. It has not been without considerable effort on the behalf of progressive institutions here in Canada to silence particularly racialized Palestinian activists, Mm -hmm. you know, between shoving them to the ground at their convention to censoring the only MPP that had the nerve to speak her truth, to speak truth to power. And so someone tagged me into a tweet the other day about a TikTok influencer interested in running for the NDP, and it got a little bit of traction. And my message was absolutely not. If you find any purpose in speaking your truth to pushing back, do not get involved with the NDP. It is sucking up people's time and energy. And in the end, that is the biggest floodgate to open. We know what the Israeli government's capable of doing. We expect it. We know what the cons and the liberals will even say when the shit erupts, right? But when the left seeds that ground and they just stand back and put their hands up, when they acknowledge, no, when they just float with the rest of everybody and... They leave us way open, right? Because even when your leaders won't defend you, then you're indefensible, yeah? Then it's so much harder to feel validated. It's so much harder to make space for everybody when they're so confused because the people that should know better, that should be on their side, are failing us. And so I don't want anybody to look up for guidance on this. Everybody should be looking at their Palestinian friends and comrades and organizations and follow their lead. Fuck the NDP and fuck Justin Trudeau. That is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you for joining us. 
Also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, please share our content. And if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.